Hopefully I've got a list turned on right and you can all hear me very well out the front there. Wunderbar. Hey, um, if you haven't been welcomed enough already, uh, welcome all to our service this morning. We get to worship Jesus together and that's kind of the best thing ever, so I'm glad to, to be here for that. Uh, as well. Um, if you weren't here last week, you won't know that um, we've begun uh, our series, uh, might call it our, our vision series. It's kind of the, the launch of the year. It's the beginning of what we're going to be doing together as a church in our time together uh, well into the, um, the, the month of June. If I can get a slide up here, this, that's the right one. Um, this is essentially where we're going to be heading. Last week, uh, we began the first four weeks of this in which we'll be kind of landing the big ideas that are going to shape the rest of our time. And then what we're going to be doing after that is circling back to those those uh, smaller ideas to kind of focus in on what they meant. And so last week we spoke about the most important of, of all ideas recently, uh, uh, really, which is of gospel-centeredness. The idea it is that, um, that it is Jesus who changes lives, that it's by the power of the gospel, by the grace uh, that comes through Jesus, that God is accomplishing all that He is accomplishing uh, in our lives uh, and in our church. And so we need to seek to... Uh, be gospel-centered in all we do, not only to um, believe the gospel, but also to, to center our lives upon uh, the power of its truth and the power of what God is using that truth to accomplish by His Spirit. Um, and so this week, we now move on to the next idea, um, the next sort of foundational thing that kind of shapes our church, which is discipleship, but not just discipleship. See, all of this comes through the... That's going to keep happening, isn't it? Um, nice catch, Maloney. All of that is going to keep happening through the, the lens of the gospel. So today we are talking about what it means to be gospel-centered disciples. What does gospel-centered discipleship look like? Um, beginning with that principle that the gospel is the functional center of our lives and our ministries, what is, what is the next big question is, what is the point of discipleship? What is its goal? Um, what is it that changes about discipleship that's critically different when we view it through the lens of the gospel? So that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be uh, doing a bit of a dance around the Bible. We're going to be in a, in a few places. Uh, and I'm looking forward to what it is that God has to say in us uh, and do in us as we speak about that. Uh, but I'm kind of aware that even as I, even as I begin that talk, we, we run into one kind of issue, one kind of question that needs to be resolved before we can even begin, which is, what is discipleship? Isn't that a churchy, bible type word, discipleship? If you've grown up in church, that's a word you're familiar with, and if you haven't been in church very long, that's a weird word. That's kind of just how it works. And so, um, maybe I can spend a bit of time defining what we mean by discipleship before we can begin to talk about what we mean by gospel-centered um, discipleship. Discipleship, it, it might be a, a foreign concept, it's a very old idea. Um, the closest approximation that I can think of uh, to what discipleship is in our context uh, would be the basic idea of what an apprenticeship is in, in, in the workplace. The idea is that a person who wants to learn a trade comes to an agreement with someone who has the skills that they want to learn, and so they, they come into an agreement with this person, they, they will work alongside that person for a number of years, and they will watch and learn, and then eventually they will do and learn until they get to a point where they are no longer needing that supervision, and they can, they can move out and do it on their own. That's what an apprenticeship is. Uh, in the ancient world, there were lots of different kinds of teachers uh, of different kinds, but it was common uh, for a religious teacher or a philosophical teacher to take on students who would, who would live and travel with them as they kind of went about the countryside spreading their particular brand of, of religion or philosophy. These disciples would be taught and, and discipled into the beliefs and lifestyle of the person whom they were following. And Jesus was one of these kinds of teachers. Jesus was not the only person using the method of teaching that Jesus used, do you understand? 
Um, he, was, he was one of uh, many who had a group of disciples following in his wake. Um, for example, there was another guy named John the Baptist around the same time who had his own group of disciples who were following him around in a different part of the country. What it kind of reminds me of is, has anyone seen that Ryan Gosling movie, um, Crazy Stupid Love, where, where essentially the point of the movie is that Ryan Gosling is discipling uh, Stephen Carell into what it means to be, well, a sleazebag really is, uh, is how it starts, but then uh, in, a, in a touching twist, uh, it turns out that Ryan Gosling wants Steve Carell to disciple him in, in how to love with his heart, and we all leave richer for the experience. Um, that's, that's our sermon for today. Thank you for coming. Uh, Band's going to come up. <laughs> so the, the basic idea in Christianity is similar and different to that, uh, in that um, the idea is that when we become Christians, we become saved and forgiven people. Uh, our eternal destination is now in heaven, but between those two points in our life, the point at which we first believe and the point at which we arrive with God in heaven, we now have a lifetime of being a disciple of Jesus in between those two points. That's the idea for us. Jesus is now going to lead us and to grow us and to train us into something. Uh, Christians are meant to be disciples, and I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of glad that I brought up the Ryan Gosling example. Uh, one, because he's genetically perfect and we should think of him as often as possible, right? Uh, and secondly, uh, because it serves as a good example of the next problem that we kind of need to deal with if we're, talking about, uh, if we're talking about discipleship. And that is that there are lots of bad versions of it. Uh, there, are, there are compromised or, or wrong versions of discipleship out there. There are a number of versions of the, of the Christian message that get discipleship critically wrong. And maybe you've seen some of these. Uh, and these are things that we need to address before we keep going. There is a, there is a version of the Christian message that does not contain any discipleship whatsoever. There's, there is, it's, it's, it's popular in some parts of the world. A kind of an easy believism or a, or a private faith. I believe in Jesus, I'm good, see in heaven, right? That's, that's Christianity without discipleship. The rest of my life is going to look exactly like it did before, but now I've got a ticket to heaven. Um, you won't really meet these people in church, not very often, maybe at Easter and Christmas, right? Um, it's more common, uh, and it's a flaw that's more common in places where Christianity is the dominant belief in culture. If you've grown up in a part of the world where there are lots of churches, there are more of these kinds of people around. And if you've grown up in a part of the world where the church is pretty rare, then maybe you've never met someone like that. This is a, a flaw that happens when Christianity is assumed. Um, we can end up with a Christianity that contains no discipleship. Uh, what about um, churches that teach or practice or imply that discipleship is behavioral change? It's, 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 it's an external thing, that the goal of discipleship is for you to act differently. The end. Um, the only goal that they have is to change how a person acts. The, the goal is um, if, you are, if you are nice enough, if you are good enough, if you are attending regular enough, then we can just assume you're good and, and leave it at that. We won't pry into anything, into anything personal. Um, churches that are, mo uh, that are more focused on, on rules and external appearances than on Jesus and His grace and actually loving people. Um, or perhaps even in uh, liberal churches that don't actually believe in the cross and so there's, there's nothing but behavioral change to take place. Uh, another really common one in our day is an approach to discipleship that is, is not about Jesus but is about us. It is man-centered discipleship. Discipleship is about me reaching my potential. It's about my experiences and, and my emotions and not about what God wants for me or, or from me. 
ultimately, it's, it's self-centered, and it's the sort of teaching that we see coming out of prosperity churches that teach Christians, um, that, that teach that, that Christians with enough faith will never get sick and have all the money in the world that they could ever need. Nothing will ever go wrong for you. That Christianity is about you experiencing its, its consumerism, not Christianity. See, what, what all of these kind of false versions of the Christian message have in common is that they all get the gospel wrong. That's, that's the thing that they all have in common. Discipleship, like the rest of the Christian life, is absolutely meant to be gospel-centered. And discipleship without the gospel at its center, this is how important this is, discipleship without the gospel at its center very rapidly ceases to be Christian. So that's our goal for today. To answer the question, what is gospel discipleship? What does it look like that's different from those things? What is it uh, supposed to look like? How can it look? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus through the gospel? And then for us to consider personally, what does that mean for me and what does that mean for our church? That's our goal for today. Now, in order to answer that question, I can't give you a single passage that says this is the biblical definition of gospel discipleship. That's not a thing that I can do. Um, so what I've had to do is, is pull together some various threads from, from the Bible. We're going to be in the Bible in various places, and I'm going to show you where I get all of these things from, or the sorts of places where I get these things from, which means that my answer to this question is my summary, just so that you know. This is my answer to the question, what is gospel discipleship? And that means I almost certainly have missed some things. Um, I, I've almost certainly uh, not included some things that should be in there. And if you have any questions or comments, if you have any thoughts about things that you think, oh, I think that would be a really good part of your definition, Matt, come and see me after. I would genuinely like to hear that. Um, likewise, if you think there's something in there that shouldn't be there, uh, come and let me know. I'd love to talk to you about that too. That sounds like fun. I, m- I mean that sincerely, yeah. So here's my answer. Uh, and the time that we spend together this morning is going to be looking at each of the parts of my answer to this question. What is gospel-centered discipleship about? My answer is, it's about living life with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, by the grace of Jesus, until we meet Jesus. It's about living life with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, by the grace of Jesus, until we meet Jesus. Jesus. Sound good? That's where we're going to start. Let's get, let's get into this. Let's do this. Um, first of all, we need to understand that gospel-centered discipleship is about living life with Jesus. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say here is, is very important, and so let me take a few runs at it. Um, what am I trying to say that when I say that gospel discipleship is about life with Jesus? I'm trying to say that you need to be with Jesus in order to be His disciple. Maybe another way to say that is to be his disciple, you first need to be reconciled to Jesus. Or or one more way to say this is that you cannot even begin the process of Christian discipleship without first having received Christ. Christian discipleship, gospel discipleship is not the exact same thing as an apprenticeship. They, They are different things. It's not competency-based learning, ticking off skills that you have learnt until you are ready to go. Christian discipleship is a spiritual thing and, and certain spiritual realities need to exist in you before you can even begin the process. Uh, read this with me uh, and I'll show you what I mean. We're going to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 
Uh, This morning, we're going to start with some bad news before we get to some good news. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Uh, this, this is a letter written to a church. It's, it's written to a group of people who have become believers in Jesus, and, and the Apostle Paul is explaining to them what it is that has taken place inside of them when they, when they came to believe, what it is that is, is happening to them spiritually. This is how he describes these people who are now Christians. He says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There's a a bit in there, isn't there? So so let me uh, summarize. He says a few profound things. Firstly, he says a really nice thing, a really great thing about all of the people in this world. He gives them a wonderful name. He says, the dead. Isn't that flattering? What, what, what is it that makes us dead? What is this death that he's talking about? Uh, and the answer is sin. There is something broken in the human race, you see. This is what he's saying. There is something in us that compels us to carry out desires that we know are evil. The picture is kind of like a, a log floating down a river, following the current. Wherever the, wherever the water pushes, that's where the log goes. It's following the course. Uh, the Bible is, is simply insistent on this point. We, we aren't essentially good people who just do bad stuff sometimes. We are bad. We are broken. We are fallen. He says we follow the course of this world and of the, uh, the evil spiritual power that controls it and of our own internal broken desires, the desires of our flesh. And so, whether it be that the, the desire to do this comes from peer pressure of those around us or, or spiritual powers who are uh, in influencing in this world or, or from within in my own broken heart, the result is the same. We are following the course of this world. We are living in these broken desires. Now, like, understand what he's saying here isn't that people have no redeeming, uh, no nice qualities. There's nothing nice about people and that we all walk around each day being the worst kind of person we can be at all times. That's not what he's saying. That obviously isn't true. No, what he's saying is that in the entire human race, there is no point at which we are good like God is good. And in my entire existence, there is no point at which I am good like God is good, and that I am absolutely helpless to do anything about that. I am spiritually dead. We are as capable of changing our ways in regards to to God's ways as a corpse is. That's the beginning of spiritual death. After how many hundreds and thousands of years of trying, how close have we come to making a world where we no longer need a police force and an army? Where is the human ability to create a world where justice and kindness and generosity reign unchallenged as the status quo? That's the thing that we expect to see when we walk outside of our front door. I see, I see the slogans, make poverty history. What a wonderful aim. How are we going at that? Like, how, how far have we come when it comes to eliminating greed and war and the things that are causing poverty? 
See, as a race, we are spiritual corpses. And, and what is true of, of the whole, do you see what he's saying? What is true of the whole is true of the individuals that make up the whole. That means you and me. We might be able to compare ourselves to another spiritually dead person and think, I'm not doing quite so bad, at least I'm not as dead as that guy, but I hope we can all see that that kind of comparison isn't really worth anything. Next to the living God, in light of who He is and who He created us to be, in the presence of His glory, we are shown to be the smelly, stinky things that we are. It's bad news. And, and things get uh, a little bit more offensive before they get better, but they do get better, but hang through because we've got to hear the bad news first. After He says that we are dead, He says something else about us. He says that we are, by nature, children of wrath. The whole of mankind. The whole race. And by that he means, by our very nature, by that thing that's broken with us as a, as a kind of defining characteristic of our being, he says that we stand condemned before God. God is holy. In him there is no darkness and he is the judge of this world. And the spiritually dead people of this world are offensive to God. We reek we do not deserve to stand in His presence. We would defile it in our present state. God holds us responsible for our sin against Him. And when He comes in judgment, those who are spiritually dead will remain spiritually dead in the punishment of eternal separation from Him in hell. That's the bad news that makes the good news necessary. And then we get to... Ephesians 2, verse 4, where we read one of the best great big butts in the Bible. And you guys know that I love big butts when we find them in the Bible. Ephesians 2, verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And He raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And He keeps going on and on and on about how great this thing is. And I want to keep going, but I need to stop so that it makes sense for us today because we're not going any further. See, this is what God is doing through Jesus, through His gospel. He is taking dead people and He is making them alive again. This is the good news of the grace of the Christian God. He is taking spiritual corpses and he is reanimating them. You are the living dead if you are a Christian here today in some sense. What did a corpse do to deserve this from God? Well, like what wonderful thing about the dead body did God think, mm, that's, a, that's a good thing for me to bring into my presence and into my family? And the answer is nothing. We sat around stinking up the place. That's what a dead body does. That's why it is by grace that you have been saved. What else could possibly have worked, have worked? The good news here is that all of those things that once defined us, the slavery to sin, the hostility to God, the being trapped in our own inability to escape that problem, all of that fundamentally changes on the inside of a person when they come to faith in Christ and He comes to live in them. 
All of the rest of God's wonderful promises come into play. We are reconciled to God and He comes by His Spirit and He he lives in us. We are now in Christ. He is with us and we are with Him and we are fundamentally different. What defined us before no longer defines us. If If anyone is in Christ, that's the promise, right? If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Okay, let's, let's take what we just learnt and apply it to the concept of discipleship. This morning, we're going to try something new. Uh, instead, of, instead of coffee and tea outside after church this morning, we're going to do something slightly different. When, when we're done here, the band will play, and then we're all going to go outside and get into our cars, and we are going to drive to, to the Tawong Cemetery. You see where I'm heading with this? When, when we all get there, we are, as a group together, kind of by, I don't know, some random process of elimination, we're going to choose a random grave and we are going to dig up its contents and put them on the ground. Unless we somehow accidentally manage to get a freshie, what will be lying on the, on the ground in front of us will be a pile of bones. And then what we're going to do is we are going to, together, disciple the dead body, right? We'll need to give him a name, Bonesy. We are going to disciple Bonesy together. So uh, maybe Mike can, um, can spend some time discipling Bonesy in, in the law of God and how it teaches us to understand right from wrong. Uh, Troy is going to help Bonesy figure out what its spiritual gifts are. Uh, Jeanette is going to teach Bonesy how to pray. And then we can all worship, worship Jesus together at the end of that time with, with Brother Bonesy, sing some Shine Jesus Shine and, and come back on for, for coffee. How does that sound? Please no one actually do that. I will go to jail. They will find this on the internet. And I am done for. <laughs> Looking at you, Tom. Have we, have we, seen, have we seen the point? Have, have we seen what I'm trying to say? You cannot begin the process of Christian discipleship without some other spiritual realities coming to existence inside you beforehand. You can't disciple a corpse. And so gospel discipleship means we must first respond to the gospel and to receive salvation from God and life from God, to be brought from death to life. And then and only then can we begin to grow in grace. The the tricky thing here is that Christianity, unlike most things in life, is not a thing that you can try before you buy. I mean, if if you're new at this and you're here checking out the faith to figure out what you believe, you can observe from the outside, but you can't try before you buy. You, you can't make a deal with God and say, look, can I be born again for two weeks and give it a go and see if it's for me, right? It's not going to fly. We must begin by going to God and accepting His grace. It is an irrevocable change brought about in a person by God Himself. And only then are we able to begin. Because the whole thing is dependent on our not being spiritually dead. See, isn't this the opposite of how we're inclined to think about it? If I'm going to meet Jesus, I should probably clean myself up a little bit first. I, I love it when I'm talking to my friends and I, and I invite them here and they're like, ah, the roof would fall in, I should probably stop swearing before I, before I come along, because like, that's going to do it, right? Christian discipleship is not about mere behavioral change. It's about letting God change us from the inside out, and we all need to encounter God in this way to begin the rest of the process. Christian discipleship is about life with Jesus through the gospel. I hope, I hope that's clear. But what next? 
Okay, God offers me grace through Jesus. I, I come to the conclusion I have been living as God's enemy and I deserve his wrath. And so I turn away from my sin and I now turn to God in faith that I might be forgiven through Christ. I trust the forgiveness that, that he gives me and God resurrects me spiritually. My, my eternal destination is now different. My spiritual state is now changed. What next? I've got the rest of my life in front of me. I'm going to live it with Jesus. What is it that he's going to do with me? Here's my answer. It's about becoming like Jesus. Gospel discipleship is about becoming like Jesus. Here is the tension of a Christian's existence. Uh, If you are here today and you are a believer, then you and I, we are caught between two worlds. At our conversion, we were saved and certain spiritual realities came into being in us that fundamentally changed who we are. We started hearing people say things like, you've changed. Some of them, that's a compliment, and some of them, not so much of a compliment, right? And it doesn't take long for us to notice, though, that, that some of that old sin nature that used to define us is still hanging around. The shocking conclusion is we aren't perfect yet. Sin is still there. It's, it's different to before. I, I don't love it the way that I used to love it. It it grieves me when I see that in myself in a way that it didn't used to grieve me, but neither can I make it go away. It keeps returning. That is Christian because you are a redeemed soul living in a fallen body. And whilst sin is defeated in you, it is not gone. Maybe that's not what you want to hear. It won't be gone until you die or until you meet Christ, whichever comes first when your physical body will undergo the same process of change that has happened to you spiritually already. But here is some encouraging news. The grace of God is more powerful than sin. I'm going to say that again because it's too important. The grace of God is more powerful than sin. And over the course of your lifetime, in this war that has begun between the Spirit of God in you and your flesh, the the good news is that God will win. God is winning that war. You will progress, you will grow, and you will mature into the fullness of what God has done with you across the course of a lifetime. And the word for this process is sanctification. It takes a long time. It takes a lifetime. Now, this is the important bit. The goal... The goal of that process of sanctification is not for you to gain some kind of vaguely defined maturity or growth. It isn't just to get a bit better. It's not directionless progress. The truth is so much more profound and so much richer than that. There is a definite goal to this process that God is leading you through. God God is growing you into something and He's doing it on purpose and He has told us what He is growing us into. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3? Second Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, 
and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's good news. We've been saved. We've been set free. What comes next? And we all, that's all of us with the Spirit of the Lord, right? We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Imagine a ladder. And, and, each, and each rung on that ladder is just, has the same name, glory. And you are being transformed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. What it's saying to us is that as we look at God as, and, and we see Him, with the, the blindness removed from our eyes, that's one of the things that happened when we, when we were reconciled to Christ. What happens is that we see God fresh eyes, and we see Him in all of His wonderful, glorious splendor. We see Him for who He is, and we see Him in such a way that we are able to to love and to savor Him. And this experience of God is transforming us all, all of us who share this experience. It It is transforming us all into the same image. What, what, what does he mean by that? Are we, are we all becoming carbon copies of each other with, with no personality? That's not what he's saying, contrary to what Ned Flanders would have us believe. No, what it means is that we are being transformed to become like the one that we are all looking at. We are becoming like God himself. Not becoming gods, becoming like God himself. That image word is important. It's, it's critical for us to understand what he's saying here. It's the word used right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, when God first makes the human race. And it says that He made us in His image. There is something of who God is, of His character and of His perfections that was in us at the beginning and is meant to be in us. It's the thing that, because it's broken, because it's missing, that is such that that's the thing that makes our sinfulness such an outrage and such a travesty against God. This image, this is the thing that was broken when we fell into sin. This is, this is the thing that, because it's broken, makes us children of wrath. And here God says He is restoring that image in you, if you believe. Like, do you, do you realize what this is saying? To saying that you get to see God. You get to see Him. You get to see Him. And when you see Him, you're going to discover something about Him. He's wonderful. He's, he's glorious. He's beautiful and, and worthy and perfect. He's altogether lovely. He's different from this world. And in His presence, there is complete pleasure and fullness of joy. And He is making you like Him. That is, that, is, that is the image that you are coming to resemble. Do you want a concrete idea of what that looks like? In Colossians 1.15, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We are becoming like Jesus. You know Jesus, right? Aren't we, aren't we shocked by His wisdom and His passion? 
Aren't we in awe of his kindness and his selflessness? Isn't it easy to fall in love with his truth and how it cuts right through to the core of things and reveals everything and lets nothing hide? His compassion, his lust on the hurting and the broken is unlike anything else in this world. His humility in drawing close and serving even though we are so far beneath him. His grace, washing his disciples' feet, washing literal poo off his disciples' feet the night before he was crucified for them. His amazing love in dying for his enemies so that they might live. His resurrection power, walking out of the grave again three days later. That's Jesus. And we get to become like Jesus. Isn't that good news this morning? This, this transformation, it's, it's taking place in us in a peculiar way, in a particular way. It's happening as we, with the, with the veil lifted from our eyes, are seeing the glory of God. It's, it's happening as we, as we interact with God himself unhindered. I was, I was trying to think of an illustration of what this is like in, in any other part of life. What else has the power to transform by being seen? All my examples fall short. I could only think of things in people that inspire some kind of change in other people. Like, like someone acting courageously. The, the panic has set in. When I, when, I was on, uh, when I was on holidays, I was on a, on a hike with a lady whose son had been at the, at, at the Splendor Festival, I think it's called. I'm going to get it wrong. There was a, a, a crowd rush for the door and some people got squished. Uh, I don't think anyone died. The panic sets in, the, the crowd starts to rush out, people lose their senses and start to panic and start like, almost like mere animals to trample on top of one another, right? One brave person masters their panic and they, they risk themselves and they bend down and pick up someone who has fallen and, and saves their life, risking their own life in the process and maybe some other people seeing that happen come to their senses and stop pushing and start trying to, to help, something like that. I thought, I thought of an illustration like children with their simple joy, uh, Elise and I will be, be arguing in a way that we shouldn't be arguing, not the, not the godly argument, they exist, the, the ungodly ones, right? When Flo walks into a room uh, oblivious to the tone and in a way that only a child ever could, shares with some some very important facet of her day. I saw a goat. I, had, I have flowers in my hat. You know, wh- whatever it is that's, that's filling her mind at that point in time. Daddy made me a special bed. She loves dropping that one randomly in the car from time to time. And, and we're, we're stopped in our tracks. Her simple love of life is a reminder to her that we love each other too and that we have no reason to be behaving like we are. See, those things are good, but neither of those work as an exact illustration of the thing that I'm talking about. They are both examples of someone inspiring something in us and bringing it to the front, our, our better self coming to the, to the front of our being. But this is bigger than that. This isn't about him making you a better you. We are being transformed. Something that is missing in you or broken in you is being replaced and fixed and corrected. Something is being added to you. Something of who God is that is different from who we are. It's meant to be there. It was meant to be there from the beginning. And the outrage of history is that it has been lost. It has been broken. It has been marred. And God is, is putting this thing in you, his people, on this side of salvation by our seeing him. We encounter 
through the grace of Christ and the work of the Spirit in us, we encounter the glory of God. We are transformed to resemble it. That's why it's so devastating that we go the other way. How many, how many times do we see it that someone has become a Christian and they've begun to grow, but then they have some kind of significant setback. They discover that thing that we've all discovered. Sin isn't gone. They, they do something that they are ashamed of or embarrassed by and in fear and shame, they run away from God and His church thinking that's the end. I can't, I can't come back from this one. Look, if, if that's you this morning... Isn't what we're learning here the thing that tells you if you're going to run, run the other way? Do you want to deal with the thing in you that's causing so much pain and so much guilt? The solution is not run away from Christ in shame. Run towards Christ in hope. Run to where you can be healed and transformed. He is the place where life comes from and He'll still have you. He haven't, you haven't surprised Him or shocked Him in any way. And when you encounter Him and when you see Him, you will be transformed to be like Him. The promise still stands true even though you've made a, a muck of things. Do you understand? Run towards His people. Run towards the other image bearers of Christ, people who resemble him, and so we have confidence will love you like he loves you, and if they don't, shame on them. Run into the Word, the place where we see Christ perfectly, where we can hear his truth and, and be transformed. Run to him in prayer and encounter him in all of his glorious grace for you, and in seeing him be transformed to be like him. Gospel-centered discipleship is about becoming like Jesus. It's the process of, of putting into place the things in your life and in your relationships that will help you to see Jesus most clearly. Now, we've, we've touched on this next bit, but we, we have to say it again and again and again. It's our greatest need to hear this. That gospel discipleship is by the grace of Jesus. It's a thing that starts at salvation by grace, and it's a thing that only continues in us by grace. Hear the words of Christ in John 15. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples on that night when he was arrested. This is his last night with them and this is how he is equipping them for what is to come next. He says, from verse 5, no, from verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See that, that word abide, it, it gets translated a, a few different ways. Remain, stay, dwell, be present. Do you see what he's saying? Remain in me, stay in me, 
live your life in me, dwell in me, make me your home base that everything else comes out of. This is one of those as and so moments that we talked about last week, if you were here for that one. How we receive Jesus and how we continue on in Jesus works in much the same way. Abandon self-sufficiency, turn away from sin and turn to God in dependence. That's how it begins and that's how it continues. Stay in dependence on Jesus. Remain in me. In the same way that a, a vine can't bear fruit unless it, uh, sorry, a branch can't bear fruit unless it remains in the vine. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. It's an absurd image, isn't it? A branch hanging off a tree and deciding it's time to bear some fruit. Job done. Let's get this thing happening. And yet, isn't that exactly what we do when we try to leave behind grace and dependence on Christ, thinking that this is somehow going to lead to us growing? Branches with too high a view of ourselves. We need to hear this word wash over us today. You are not the tree. You are not the vine. You are not the source of life. He is the tree. He is where nourishment and life and hope come from. You are a branch. He, he's not saying people have no abilities to do anything when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do stuff. You can eat breakfast in rebellion against God if you want to. We're talking about this fruit idea. The, the fruit that he's talking about is, is producing a life that is good, like God is good. Godliness, the, the Bible word for it is, is righteousness. You can't make yourself good like God is good. You can't make yourself godly and you can't defeat sin in you. Have you not learnt that lesson already? You can't make that change in yourself. You can't produce righteousness. It's not yours. That's not going to fly. You can't change yourself to be in His image. Uh, if we can get this photo up here, over, over the holidays, um, so we went to New Zealand, if you haven't picked that up, I'm just going to drop that as often as I can as, over the next couple of months. Um, one of the things that we got to do is we, um, we visited some family and they took us to visit their friends who, who ran a cherry farm. So we, we walked around this, this, um, this lovely farm on the, on the South Island and I discovered that when the, when the Israelites arrived at the Promised Land and they came with the grapes carried on a stick between two blokes, that's New Zealand's South Island. It's, that's actually where it was, I think. Because... This, the fruit on this farm was, was unlike anything else. This guy was very generous. He, he took us around this whole farm and, and these cherries. I will never eat cherries again. They were uh, amazing and he, he piled about three kilos of them on us. I wish I was exaggerating. And we ate most of them and that's how Flo looked afterwards uh, with a bit of uh, juice down the front there and that sort of slight, I regret this face. Um, I was doing a little bit better than her at that point, but later on I looked like that. I think that the amazing thing about the farm, it, it wasn't just the, the cherries, though. It, he, he, he took us out of the, the cherries is what he sells to make his money. He's like got international export quality cherries. He, t he took us over to an, another part of his farm, which was just his personal garden. Uh, and this guy's just sitting on some A-grade dirt, right? Because the things that were coming out of it. Uh, he took us to his uh, strawberry bush, and he gave us strawberries that were roughly the size of a peach, probably just about as juicy. And when you bit them, the, the juice would run down your arm, uh, and they were sweeter than... I think I almost cried. There was definitely a crackle, you know that crackle? Thank you. That sort of... 
See, I, I asked this farmer guy a few things about how he grows his fruit, and he said, you know what, the trick to getting them to grow so big and so healthy and so juicy is to pull them off the bush the second they appear and leave them to do it on their own. That's, that is the secret to getting fruit to grow healthy and strong, right? No. A self-made strawberry is a strong strawberry. That's not going to happen. Of course, of course he didn't say that. Remain in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's all by grace. We, be, we begin by grace and we continue by grace. He who remains in me, he it is that bears much fruit. See, there's a, there's a heap of ways to tell that we're beginning down the road of abandoning grace and trying to do this on our own. Here's a good one. How is your prayer life? I don't mean, are you trying really hard to pray? How is, how is your devotional life? You see, if you, if you find that you don't pray much, the problem isn't that you don't try hard enough to pray. The problem is that you don't think you need God's help. That's what causes a person to not pray. I mean, if you, if you really, at the, at the front of your awareness, if you were really absolutely aware of your dire need for God, don't you think you'd stop and ask Him for help? We do, right? We, when we have those moments when we truly feel a need, we stop and we pray. I mean, atheists do it. The bus is coming. Help me, God, right? But in the, in, in the rest of our life, how is, how is this working out? Do you really believe that you need God's help in all things? If you find that you're not speaking to Him, it's a sign that you've begun to think that you are self-sufficient. Listen again to how Jesus describes our ability to bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Doesn't it seem backwards in our thinking that being told something as discouraging as that is the secret to growth? But it is in the, in the profound wisdom of God. Jesus knows that's exactly what we need to hear and what we need to understand and what we need to rely on in order for us to realize that He is our greatest need and then get all the things that we need in order to bear fruit. Learning to live by grace is about us learning down to the core of our being two truths. We need to become, first of all, absolutely convinced of our own inability this is step one of discipleship being about grace. It's about grace when it's not about works, when it's not about my achieving or my deserving or my earning. And secondly, we need to become more and more and ever so more convinced of God's ability to be sure of who He is and just what it is that He has done for you, the totality of His grace for you to grow in your trust that He gives His grace to you willingly and with lavishings of kindness. Gospel discipleship is about the grace of Jesus. Now, we've got one last point this morning. I know I've been going for a little while, but I think, um, I think you'll agree that this is worth our time. One last thing for us to look at today. And we're answering one last question, I suppose. Where does all of this lead? What is the end goal? And my answer is that gospel discipleship is preparing us to meet Jesus. Let's have a look in 2 Corinthians 4. 
verses 16 to 18. So, speaking to Christians, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is, is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is what life is going to look like for us all. This broken world is going to take a toll on us. Our bodies are going to get old and start to break down. We are at various stages along that process, aren't we, here today? We will carry the scars that we have accumulated over a lifetime. We already carry some of them. Life in this world will hurt us. We will know loss and we will know grief. We will know discouragement and we will know pain I don't know what the hurt has been for you and I don't know what the hurt will be for you. What I do know is that there is no point in comparing whose is worse. We, we aren't here to, to compare scars. No, we're here to hear a life-giving promise. And that is that as gospel disciples of Jesus Christ, all of that suffering that we just thought about has meaning. All of it has purpose. Not one second of your pain will be wasted. God is redeeming every bit of pain that you are experiencing and will ever experience. And he is putting it to work for you. He is preparing you. And when all is said and done and we stand before the one who through the eye of faith we've been spending a lifetime looking at when all is said and done and we stand before him, we will be able to draw a direct comparison between these two things. My hurts, my pains and my losses and my trials on the one hand and the eternal weighty glory that is now my forever home. And I will be able to hold them side by side and look at them and I will know with an unshakable confidence which is more significant. I will only and we will only be able to describe our pain in one way, as a light momentary affliction. One will be so much greater and so much more profound and so much more permanent than the other. That the other will seem insignificant no matter how, no matter how big it seems now, do you see? And that is because the thing that he is preparing us for is, is so much greater and so much grander than anything you and I have ever imagined. Life with him forever. As someone who has been perfectly conformed to his image in a world that has been redeemed from the stain of sin. Life just like this one in some ways, but without sin and its effects, ruining everything. Could we even imagine it? Life without guilt and without the gulf that has existed between people and God and me and God. Students, don't you relate to this? 
Study is hard. It goes on for years and then it ends and you're now free to work in your field. And it was a light momentary affliction in light of the career that now lies in front of you unless you're studying English lit or communications, in which case, I'm sorry, it has no purpose. Anyone here, anyone here ever completed a, a, a long distance race? A marathon or a, a triathlon, a, a road race, a, a bike race? Endurance, pain, sweat, tears, probably blood, followed by reward, satisfaction, contentment, and then a bit more pain a few days after that. Parents, isn't childbirth the most horrendous thing that could possibly exist? And yet we do it again. Because of the joy at the end, the pain is forgotten, and I mean forgotten. You would never do that twice if you could remember. I remember. <laughs> we can understand that reward makes difficulty worthwhile, but can we understand this? What does it have to be? What does the reward have to be? How, how great and glorious a thing does it need to be to make all of the crap that happens in life seem light and momentary? How much greater does it have to be? A loved one dies. Our church, we farewelled one of our sisters this week. We, we said goodbye to Bessie Peak. She's gone to be with the Lord. What does a thing have to be to make her loss seem light and small? Do we dare imagine it? The weighty, eternal, glorious home of God, now our home, us with Him and He with us, without stain and blemish. Gospel discipleship is preparing you to meet Jesus. So that's my answer. That's my, uh, my definition drawn from Scripture. Uh, we're going to have some time this morning to continue in worship to God. If you were here last week, this will be familiar, but if you missed it, that's okay. I can explain again. See, we're, we're doing something a little different uh, in our time in, in, this, in this series. We've got some, some spaces set up around the room where you can respond in different ways. And I know it's totally intimidating, the idea that we would get up and walk around the building during church. But yes, I am inviting you to do that. You can, you can stand and you can sing the praises of God with your brothers and sisters like we do every week as the band comes and leads us in, in worship. That's totally, that's totally great. Um, but there's some other things we can do. Back here we have a cross that symbolizes the cross. I think it's doing a good job. Um, it's a place that symbolizes redemption. I don't know, maybe you were listening today and you, you, you've heard something, you've heard it's by grace and you haven't been running by grace. Maybe you were listening and you thought, yes, I do want to begin this, this process of discipleship with Jesus, but first I need, I need his salvation. You know, this, is, this is a place that you can go and you can pray and you can picture yourself at the feet of the cross of Christ. You can, uh, you can write a note and stick it on there. You can see that there's some there already and, and uh, maybe a prayer or a, a Bible verse or something like that. Um, over here, we have a place where we, where, where we just pray for one another. If, if you are listening to this and you think, there's some, I need someone to pray with me, I need someone to talk with about these things, well, um, a few of us are going to be down the, the front here immediately after this, and uh, anyone who wants to come and, and just talk and pray with someone, we'd, 
we'd love to do that with you. That's, that's our joy. Uh, and then lastly, over here, we have um, what we call our hope space. And the idea of that is that we're looking forwards as a church to what does this mean for us. But maybe as you were listening, you, you had a thought, you had a, a picture, you had a hope of, of what it would look like for us as a church to be living these truths out. And you wanted to encourage your brothers and sisters by, by writing up a, a prayer or a, a promise or an idea that, that we will all be able to see. Um, and that's a place that you can do that too. And that would be very helpful. I'll tell you what, why don't I pray? Um, and we will continue to worship Jesus in these ways. How do, we, how do we describe it, Lord? The great thing that you have done. How do we even comprehend it? Your promises are so big, so profound. Do I dare believe it? Jesus, we pray that you would convince us of your truth this morning, that your love is for us, and that your grace is for us, that you have good news for broken people like us, that you are going to save us, that you're going to make us like you, and that you're going to do it all by grace from beginning to end until we meet you and beyond. when we do the thing that we do and we're all uh, short-sighted, it can seem like there's some pretty big obstacles between us and your purposes in our life. They can seem insurmountable. Lord, bring to mind for me right now and for my, for my brothers and sisters here those things in our life that are standing in the way of your plan to grow us and to mature us into your image, to lead us into bearing fruit in your name. Be it my pride, my pain, my wrongheadedness, my, just my lack of understanding, whatever it is, Lord. Bring it to mind now so that I might lay it down at your feet. But I believe that I am better off with you and better off without that thing. It's better off in your hands than in my hands. Jesus, you are the vine. You are the living God. You do go on forever. You are the beginning and the end. And Lord, you invite us to live in you. I pray that this morning we would accept your invitation and then tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and we would live all our days in that promise. By your grace we pray. Amen.